Welcome everyone to Know The Brand Podcast, a podcast designed to champion and support gender inclusion in business. Welcome everyone. I'm Julia, your host, a social entrepreneur dedicated to helping women in business. Join me and my fantastic guest to find out more about gender inclusion and to be inspired by their incredible stories. Welcome everyone to a new episode of our podcast. Today with us we have Marielen Iskederian. Marielen is the CEO of Women's World Banking. She is uh, um, a contributor to the Harvard Business Review and to Wall this Wall Street Journal and to Forbes. Most importantly, Mary Allen has written an incredible book called There is Nothing Micro About a Billion Women. A book that has talked to me so much, that is incredibly interesting and can really help everybody understand what financial inclusion means and what it means in relation to gender inclusion. Welcome, Mary Allen. Julia, thank you. That was such a, a kind introduction. Really appreciate it. Oh, no, honestly, I'm so excited to have you with us. When I was asked to read your book, I was uh, already excited even before starting it. And then I read it and it's packed with so much incredible research and information. Honestly, it's a true honor to have, us, have you with us today. But before we start digging more into the book, can you tell us a bit more about you, where you come from, a bit about your background? Oh, thank you. Yes. Well, I've been, it seems really hard to believe I will, in about uh, three weeks from now, I will celebrate 16 years at Women's World Banking, which is a global NGO dedicated to making sure that women, uh, particularly low-income women in developing countries, have access to the financial services and products that they need, not just loans. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little yes. bit from the title of the book, but the full array of products and services that you and I need. Um, and I came to Women's World Banking from um, the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, where I had worked for 18 years, very long time, Um, and I, I feel to some degree I'm paying a bit of penance for the time that I was uh, that I was there because I worked a lot of those years in the financial sector and I worked in the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, setting up new financial institutions or privatizing financial institutions. And I never once asked a bank or an insurance company or an, an equity fund how many women clients they had. Were they serving women-owned businesses? Were their depositors women? And so I really um, just feel now at Women's World Banking, I have such a, a chance to... To, to make up for that difference or that, you know, that, that time, but also to really make people more aware of um, the fact that there isn't financial parity and what the opportunity of financial parity might be. 
this is a really interesting topic for me specifically because I work a lot, as I mentioned to you before we start the episode, with financial institution because uh, it, it is a world where uh, gender inclusion is not quite there yet, to say it lightly. Um, and you're absolutely right, you know, uh, asking the question as how many and many women they serve and what products women need, because we, women and men are different, which is the beauty of diversity. We always say it, uh, but that means that we have different needs, even when it comes to financial services. Um, so if we talk about women, gender inclusion and financial inclusion, could you give us a, a brief um, explanation of what you mean by financial inclusion and how does that relate then to gender inclusion? No, happily. Um, so there, the formal definition of financial inclusion of being, you know, it's such a terrible word, quote unquote, banked. Um, <laughs> all it means, yeah, I know. <laughs> all it means is that you have a bank account or more recently a mobile money account in your own name. But I think where, where I really differ and where Women's World Banking has been um, really quite quite vigorous in making the point that to be really included, you have to have more than just that, that account in your name, but you need a safe and affordable way to send money or receive money, given you know the vast numbers of people around the world who rely on remittance payments for a large uh, percentage of their income. Uh, women in particular, men obviously need this, but women in particular look for a safe place to save their money. Uh, in fact, we see in many countries, a woman is, is more drawn to a formal savings product than she is to a, a lending product as her first sort of introduction to the formal financial sector. But that's not to say that, that credit isn't important. It is uh, absolutely fundamental to have, again, you know, affordable credit that is um, extended in a non-predatory way where the terms are very clearly understandable because people need the ability to make large purchases or if uh, a woman is an entrepreneur and growing a business, she needs that capital really to sustain the growth. And then one thing that we think is very important to add is insurance as well, because we see so often that women will you know, build wealth and will build businesses and will have uh, have really worked their way slowly out of poverty with those other services. And then a sudden illness or the death of a of a um, a breadwinner in a family can just reduce it all to to rubble. And so they need the ability to mitigate risk and to um, to protect what they've built. Yeah, these are the three pillars you talk about in, in financial inclusion. So the ability to save, the ability to borrow, and the insurance. And it's something that really uh, struck a chord with me because, uh, um, I mean, we, we are lucky. We live uh, in a developed country, but I can imagine that uh, some of the story you, you told as well, so some women save, they borrow money for the business, and then something horrible happens, and all of a sudden... It's usually the woman that give up uh, her business to care yeah. for the person that needs to be looked after. 
and jeopardizing really everything they built. And and in a matter of a few months, they can lose everything, and the family could lose everything. Exactly. Exactly. And in your book, you talk about a lot about the inclusion, financial inclusion, in a sense that really, as you said at the beginning, the, the ability to have a contact, a, a bank account, the ability to be banked, which, yeah, sounds an horrible uh, expression, but otherwise the alternative is really to put the money in under the mattress, which right. is actually really some, what people do in countries where they cannot trust or they cannot have access to, to banking, you talk about the fact that if you don't have an ID, obviously, and it's considered normal, right? That if you don't have an ID, um, you can't open a bank account because we need to know our customers, we need to know where they, they, get, they get the money from, etc. But in many countries, having an ID is not as obvious as it is for us to, no, to get a piece of paper that no. says who you are. And so what can women do? What can we do to, to, to help these women? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you, you, you use the phrase you did, because actually that piece of paper, um, in some respects, is really even the problem. Um, as more and more countries and companies, and we saw this very much during the pandemic, brought their services um, online and made them more digital, not being able to prove your identity digitally and only having that piece of paper is makes you more and more vulnerable. And so we're seeing, um, you know, we just, we feel so strongly that women need access to finance, yes, but they also need access to smartphones and access to that technology so that they can take that first step towards financial inclusion since so much of financial services now, particularly for the poor, are being dispersed digitally. We see that there is still a um, 16% gender gap in the ownership of smartphones. There had been a real you know, sort of race to smartphone ownership in, in 2020. But then the industry association for the, the cell phone industry uh, just about a month or so ago put out data that shows we've really stalled. And we're seeing that if there is a smartphone in a household, it is going to be owned by the husband. And interestingly, women are quite, you know, vocal about the fact that they won't bank on a shared phone. They'll use it to find information, they'll use it to make calls, but they don't want that 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 desire for confidentiality that we see um, amongst women really also applies to um, to digital financial services. So, getting that technology is is absolutely um, is absolutely critical. And so, I think to the extent that. Um, you know, cell phone companies or governments can make sure that there are affordable, um, not only handsets, but affordable data packages. Um, you know, we see a lot of governments who've kind of seen how much money is being made in digital and have started to really raise very high taxes when the companies are still not even yet at break even because they need more of the of the population to be online. So it's it's I think we all need to contribute to that um, that dissemination of the technology in a more equal and fair way. 
Well, that's very interesting because you see, I work uh, uh, in gender inclusion and uh, I'm asked uh, often why I work closely uh, to the fintech area. Mm-hmm. And there are many reasons. One is I, I love technology, so it's something that has always I've always been passionate about. But one of the reasons is specifically this, because I see technology, well, fintech, as a, a way to uh, change what we know so far and to create a different world. There are obviously, there are, you know, challenges, privacy and security and all of that, but also as an opportunity to really create a fairer world. And we see that with exactly with financial inclusion. So before it was really difficult for women and men, because also men have the same struggle to access financial services. And now through technology, we with these people have the opportunity to bank, have the opportunity to send money, you know, to their family. I'm thinking about, you know, for instance, I used to live in Singapore and there were all the, the, the women and, you know, the women working in the households and the men working in constructions. They want to send money to the family, but it becomes a, lot, a lengthy process and they have to pay commission. There are a lot of people that, you know, get rich at the expense of these people because they get commission to send the money back home. And yeah. so all the work that these people do, in, in fact, brings not as much value to the family as it could. And even these women are not, uh, these people are not in control of their finances, which is what you said before, particularly for women, the ability to have a personal phone and to the privacy of of their, uh, uh, you know, banking, which is yeah. something I want to mention because it's something we, you, you talk about in the book. Unfortunately, financial inclusion for women, so the ability to borrow, save, borrow money, having an insurance that protects them, is not always something positive for the woman itself, herself because there are countries where, unfortunately, women uh, in, encounter violence especially from their partners, if they become financially independent. Is that what you've seen in your studies? Is it, am I correct? Um, I, Julia, thank you so much for raising that. I think in some ways this was the most, one of the most um, disappointing findings, I guess, because the research is still really quite equivocal on whether a woman's life is you know, irrevocably better or irrevocably worse from the perspective of making her um, vulnerable to to violence if she has um, more more money, more control o- over her money. Um, we see that in you know in some places where the gender norms are still very much in flux, um, women really can be more more vulnerable. There does appear to be pretty consistent literature that says at the very least, giving women you know, accounts in their own name and the ability to control the, the finances that are there, that, you know, that not necessarily insisting on it being a, a joint account, that can at least give women um, the place to accumulate enough money, perhaps to get themselves out of the situation. But um, you know, you mentioned earlier that I I have sort of calls to action at the the end of the book, and really one of my biggest calls to action real is to researchers because the the, the seminal definitive piece of work on whether women are more or less vulnerable to 
uh, gender-based violence, if they are financially included or not, has yet to be done. And it's it's really time to do that work. There are some indications, as I said before, that, that um, digital does seem to protect women more. The, the, the act, you know, cash isn't immediately available. There is that level of confidentiality. Um, you know, I, I had a conversation with a woman in, in Nigeria a few years ago, and she just pointed to her phone, her phone and smiled and said, you know, my savings are here and the SIM card, and that doesn't do my husband very much good, you know? (laughs) So, you know, the, all the indications are good, but we really need that definitive piece of work to be done. Absolutely. And if we go back a little bit on the fact that uh, women and men bank differently and the fact that she said, you know, my husband cannot touch because it's true, like what often happens. And, I, I you know, we see it uh, like the, the women save, they put the money away, then the husband requires money and she's kind of compelled to give the money uh, to the husband. But actually, um, the studies that you uh, cite in your book shows that the women and men spend money very differently. Yeah. And so um, when women can invest their own money, they usually tend to invest it for the family, uh, for the education of their children, for the health care of the family. And uh, actually, I was reading a, an article yesterday. Um, you know, a lot of people, when we talk about sustainability, just think about the environment and forget all the social aspects that are linked to sustainability. But actually, helping women and gender inclusion, particularly in, uh, um, in developing countries, has an impact on the environment. Because when women become educated and become have access to finance and they can save money and use it and borrow and create work uh, through their companies, they actually have a positive Im- Im- impact on the environment because of the choices they make when they use this money. They don't just use it to, to fulfill a financial desire, but they invest it often in uh, products and services that have a positive uh, positive um, impact on environment, positive impact on their family in terms of healthcare and uh, and education, and all of this is transformative. Actually, the, the article I was reading says that is the second biggest uh, um, element we should focus on: gender inclusion in developing countries to fight global warming, which is wow, incredible. Fabulous. Yes, and yet very little is done, as you say. Not even we don't even know exactly the effect of this, um, you know, w- gender inclusion financially. And another thing that you mentioned, maybe more research should be done, or you can alight a little bit for us, is that when we look at developing countries, we look at microfinancing as a way to empower women. But in your book, you suggest that as much as that is very important, is not the only answer. Can you tell us a bit more? Because I think a lot of us thinking, well, that's great. There is microfinancing. We've, we find a solution for, to the problem. Let's just get on with that. But I think you have a, a little bit of a different approach to that. Am I correct? Oh, yes. Um, and and I think, it, you know, it gets back to what we were speaking about earlier, that, that you know, for so long and really to, you know, unfortunately, a very great extent, microfinance institutions have been, you know, very much focused on on 
credit products on lending and to um you know to far too great a degree they are still not providing savings very few of them i think fewer than 20% of microfinance institutions um provide um insurance products and they've been very slow to to digitize um and that's been as you know as i said is such a game changer um for women in terms of accessibility, affordability, um, safety. So it just feels like um, microfinance made a, an extremely important point that the poor are quote unquote bankable. It also had some fairly um, you know, extraordinary results for many people when you saw the gender breakdown that women were across the board, better repayers. But without that, that multiplicity of products, without, you know, the variety of, the, you know, financial products and services, as I mentioned before, payments, savings, insurance, as well as credit, the woman and her family just are not going to be able to do as much um, as, as they could if the only thing they had available to them is, is, uh, is a loan. And so what would be uh, your recommendations for a, a, a microfinance institution? Would be to diversify the offer that they, they have? Or uh, should women look at bigger organizations? What do you think is the, the best way, if there is any? No, we work with a lot of microfinance institutions around the world. And, and it's always, you know, it's always very gratifying to work with them because they have such a clear focus on the low income customer. They're very comfortable thinking about products that are designed for women. Um, so they're, they're, they can be wonderful organizations, but I'd say uh, two things. W one is, is make sure you are structured sort of legally, regulatorily in order to be able to take savings and to offer multiple products and then to digitize your operations as soon as possible. Um, I think I, I mentioned in the book that, you know, I think microfinance institutions who don't digitize really are at risk of being left with, you know, perhaps the poorest, weakest clients because, once uh, that that woman is introduced to a digital product, she's going to have so many more choices, so much, um, you know, frankly, better customer experience that the microfinance institutions may, you know, may be left in a much less competitive position. And that, to be honest, applies to microfinance, but uh, to normal banking. Honestly, I mean, I we did a, an ICT event in Luxembourg uh, last month, or the months before, and that was exactly the same message. Digitalization is here, and the bank industry needs to, to wake up to it because we all want a better experience. And so if we want it, even more people yeah. that need it want something that makes it easier for them, as we say, to save and to borrow and, you know, to grow their business and not just their business, but to ensure that their family is safe, really. And, you know, they can prosper. Um, so you talk about uh, uh, the business case for uh, uh, gender inclusion 
in, in, in financial inclusion for women. Can you tell us a few points? Why should we care? Why us that we live in this very lucky world, should we care about uh, women uh, in developing countries and why they should have access to, why they should be bankable, as you said? Well, you know, th that was such a big motivator for me to write the book. Um, and, and there was sort of one moment almost in, in particular when um, the IMF of all places, who for many, many years had not really engaged with the subject of, of financial inclusion, you know, perhaps they would talk about whether or not, or they would research whether it made a financial system more or less stable. But they started to pivot a few years ago into the linkages between financial inclusion and inclusive growth in terms of income inequality, and then what was the relationship between gender inequality, financial inclusion, and income inequality. And they, they finally um, gave it the term that really kind of uh, made it all come together by, by referring to it as being macro-critical. And we, we know now that gender inequality and overall economic inequality in a country are directly correlated. And that you actually, even when you're trying in, with the best of intentions to improve um, the degree of inequality in, a, in an economy, if you don't ensure that the most excluded population is expressly included, you really run the risk risk of even exacerbating inequality. And that's why almost, it's almost a shorthand or a shortcut in saying women at every age group, every country, every income group are more excluded than, than men. So to be able to talk about inclusive growth, uh, economic equality, all of those topics must engage in the topic of gender equality and women's financial inclusion. Then, then the second reason really was, um, you know, as you said, you referred to, to that phrase bankable that I'd used earlier, you know, there's a, been a growing movement by several McKinsey, Oliver Wyman, you know, many consulting firms to try to quantify what money basically is being left on the table? What economic opportunity is being left behind because men and women are not served at parity? And so Oliver Wyman estimates that across the entire financial services uh, sector, $700 billion in annual, so every year <laughs> revenue, is, is being left untouched because men and women are not served, um, are not served equally. And then, and then finally, and, and perhaps the most, um, the most compelling, the most important is the impact we know that takes place on the woman herself. You know, in addition to when a woman has greater control over, over financial resources, yes, there may be, you know, more money coming into the household, more assets owned by the household. So that's sort of the easy part. We also can tra track 
real cognitive development. Women have a greater awareness of opportunities. They have more skills available to them just by virtue of interacting with financial services. But then there's some really exciting things that take place in relationship, a woman and her other rest of her household, her neighbors, the rest of the community. When she has more control over financial resources and how they're spent, she is more engaged in the decisions in that household. And as you mentioned, Julia, when a woman is left or at least engaged in um, driving those decisions, they tend to benefit more members of the family, more members eat well, more of them have healthcare services, they tend to invest much more on housing improvements than men do. And so there's some really important um, community and household effects that, that take place. But then finally, we know, and again, there's been some really very very compelling research that look at women's self-esteem and the sense of their own, their own value, their ability to sort of transcend that day-to-day grind and start planning for the future. And all of those things are, are sort of directly relatable. There's been some really profound research done in the last few years that point directly to those impacts when women are financially included. And to be honest, I mean, it's absolutely true in the developing countries, but I actually feel that a lot of the things you talk about can be applied to developed countries as well, because all too often women are not participating into the financial of the house as much as the men are. And when, but when they do, they, they, their relationship with, within the household changes um, they tend to invest differently from their husband. And again, it's because we are different and that's a great thing. Uh, but they tend to invest a lot into their family, their children, to the point that sometimes they forget to invest in, in themselves, which mm-hmm. is not such mm-hmm. a good thing. Um, and, uh, and I think that we have, I personally believe that we have an obligation towards the developing countries because it's the right thing to do simply for that but if we if we go get above that, as I said, there is a clear studies show that there is a clear uh, link between gender inclusion, which go through a lot of financial inclusion and the impact on the environment, and also what we can learn from developing countries and apply it to our own life and get the same inclusion for women, because even here the products are not designed for women a lot of right. times. And we don't trust that you talk a lot in your book about the lack of trust in financial institutions. I think many, many women don't feel trust towards the uh, banks here in, you know, in Europe and the US. Uh, I personally can say certainly that I've been sitting in meetings with my husband where the person is just talking to my husband as he's uh, uh. the only one making money. I've been even told that I need to you know, bring my husband to discuss my financials oh, oh. for my own business. I'm like, no, sorry, you got it wrong. <laughs> no, <laughs> thank you very much. Oh. Um, but, you know, but it does happen. And so I think uh, not only we will help uh, the, the women in developing countries, but we're going to help us and the society at large, because I think that we can, there is enough research to prove that 
gender inclusion benefits everyone, not just the women. But so just to conclude the, this, uh, this uh, episode, can you tell us, can you give us a few tips, something practical that can be done to support financial inclusion and gender inclusion? Well, the one thing that I, you know, we haven't really talked about, but that I, I do touch on quite a bit in the book. Again, there's some really great research now that looks at what happens in a financial institution when you start to see diversity in leadership, in, you know, loan officers and um, at the board and the those institutions really starting to have much greater outreach to women clients. So I'd almost say to your audience, if you do nothing else, make sure you know about the gender diversity of the management and board of, of your bank, of your insurance company, of whoever it is that's managing your, your retirement savings, because that's a great place to start. And either, if it's not as diverse as you'd like it to be, start pressing as a valuable client to make that change or vote with your feet and find another organization that does represent that diversity that um, that really can lead to more women being included. Um, the other thing that I, I always talk about is, you know, the there's a lot of question marks around the value of financial literacy and financial education and the kind of traditional classroom education really not being very, um, very effective. People don't tend to retain those lessons. But the, the, the research does tend to show if you start children very early, really like as early as five, in bringing some of those important financial education lessons to them and, and in, you know, inculcating them as early as possible, that will serve them well. And that's both girls and boys. So start um, educating your kids as, as early as possible. I love that. There is actually, um, as I mentioned to you before we started, at the moment I'm in Rome and uh, there is a, a museum or a um, here um, dedicated to children and they have an area about gender inclusion and next to it there is uh, an area about financial education and the two go you know and uh, you know end to end because as you say let's the moment you start to understand how the finance world works the more empowered you are and if you then combine that with gender inclusion women will be more empowered and everybody is going to be absolutely more empowered uh, Any one final word as a recommendation? That's a, that was a brilliant way to uh, way to end. I mean, I think one of the one of the reasons why it has the subject has really retained my interest and my excitement is it this is a problem we can solve. The we can reach women with the technology and the services they need to be included and empowered and. It's, it's within our grasp and it, it's a solvable problem, which is exciting. There's so many intractable problems around the world, but this is one that we can solve. Oh, I love that. Oh, this is a great, this is a great way to finish a podcast. <laughs> we can do something about it. We can. <laughs> we can. I really recommend everybody to read this book. There is nothing micro about a billion women because it is an eye opener. 
It really is. I don't know. Does it come tra- translated in other languages? Because I want my mom to read it. I'm not joking. I told her today that I want her to read it. Well, you know, well, thank you for saying that because I will. T- my publisher has been sort of collecting the data on where my sales are coming from. So I will absolutely encourage a, a some some more translations. <laughs> Honestly, it's something that we need to read. We need to be aware. We can draw parallels with our life, but we can also it can also push us to make some decision as simple as you said. Find out who is in your bank, how inclusive they are, because they will not look after you the same way if you're a woman. Um, if they don't take inclusion seriously, gender inclusion seriously. So we can do something. Digitalization is coming, is there. We can empower women across the world through digitalization so there is something we can do it's just a question of educating ourselves starting with that and helping other people to educate themselves about finance and uh, and then help them with the financial inclusion well thank you so much for joining us um thank you so much it's been real pleasure to talk to you and to read your book so hopefully we will make a few we will push your publisher to make a few translations, at least Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please support us by liking it, by subscribing to our channel, and by sharing with your friends. It might seem such a small thing, but actually it will help us a lot. And stop.